Yep. So Genesis chapter 38, verses 24 through 30. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So word of God, you may be seated. Today is actually going to be over all of chapter 38, but it being daylight saving, I thought I'd have some mercy on your legs. But if you have your Bibles, please, uh, please open them up into chapter, all of chapter 38, even starting in verse 1. In the portion that Becca read, the very end of this, we have one of these infant, um, infant uh, just born sons of Judah with a scarlet thread on his hand. Scarlet thread, it's an interesting concept in the scriptures. We talk in, in theological circles and study, Bible study. We talk about a scarlet thread that weaves itself throughout the entire biblical narrative, and that scarlet thread being the blood of Christ. Here in chapter 38, the first mention of a scarlet thread, a physical scarlet thread, is at the birth of Judah's twin, son, twin sons, Zerah and Perez. Zerah nearly came out first, but the midwife puts the scarlet thread on his hand. Now, I want to remind you something that the book of Genesis is written by Moses. It's written at a time where the people of Israel are wandering through the desert. And God is communicating to Moses, and Moses is communicating to the people the law of God. And he's also, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reminding them of their past. This is the Holy Spirit working through Moses as he's reminding them of key things in their past. So yes, he's writing to them about how Zerah had the scarlet thread, and then he, then he reveals to them the law of God, the ceremonial law of God. In the ceremonial law of God in Leviticus, it talks about the vestments, the robes the priest would wear. And then amongst them, amongst the golden threads, you also had scarlet threads. And then we see the scarlet thread also when it comes to the curtain that's in the tabernacle. Both the priest and both the curtain had the same role. And that was to be a mediator between sinful man and a holy God, because if sinful man comes before a holy God, he'll die. And God proves that many, many times. So you need a mediator between sinful man and a holy God. And that is what the priests would do. They would represent the people to God and God to the people. And the curtain would separate even that man, except for one day a year from the presence of God that would be in the Ark of the Covenant. Fast forward, um, at the death of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews, he is a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the final mediator between God and man. 
And when Christ dies, that curtain that I just talked about is torn in two because there's only one mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So talking about the scarlet thread, let's go back in order of the scarlet thread because the scarlet thread shows up again physically in the story of a harlot in this town called Jericho. The people of Israel, they get out of the, they get out of the desert and it is now the next generation. It's jo, uh, Joshua's turn to lead the people of Israel. And they come to this huge city called Jericho who has these incredibly thick walls. First, they send in a couple spies. And these couple spies, they, they fill the whole place with fear because they heard about what happened to Egypt. So they're looking for these guys and this one woman who's a prostitute welcomes them into her home. And shelters them. And the spies tell her, you see that red cord, that red thread you have? Put it outside your window. So when judgment comes to Jericho, we'll know which house. When judgment came to Jericho, the walls fell. They destroyed the city. Here's the thing. It wasn't because she sheltered them that saved her life. It's because she was obedient to put the red thread outside the window. And that red thread became her salvation and her redemption. Theologians and Bible students sometimes refer to the scarlet thread running through the Bible. By this, they mean that the Bible's theme is Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and redemption for mankind. The blood of Christ runs through the entire Bible symbolically. Jesus Christ, when he was resurrected, he saw two of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus and he was walking with them. And he revealed to them, starting with the law and, and the prophets, all the things concerning him. All of scripture points to Jesus Christ. There is a scarlet thread that connects all who are in Christ and it can never be erased. Chapter 38, my wife saw this this morning. She's like, oh, Judah and Tamar because this is a difficult chapter. We skipped over a lot of the drama. We'll be going through this as we go along here, but it's a difficult chapter. One of the benefits for you of me preaching through an entire book like we're doing chapter by chapter is I don't skip the hard ones. I mean, you might want to ask yourself, when is the last time you heard a, a, a pastor preach on chapter 38 of Genesis, Judah and Tamar willingly? But this is a benefit for you. So I got to preach on this. And this is a difficult chapter. There are no good guys, but a lot of bad guys. You know, I was going to make a joke about you can't put certain of these verses on a coffee mug, but then I'll already know what my present's going to be for next pastor appreciation. By the way, I just want to stop. You guys are just amazing. I mean, just amazing. Pastor, I, I, I talked with Pastor Curtis and Alyssa, and we same, 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 uh, same uh, thing here where we just... We so appreciate you guys, how you appreciate us. And I was thinking this morning, I've gotten a lot of really interesting presents for my birthday or pastor appreciation. You guys are not only awesome, you're very creative too. I mean, I think last year for my birthday, the Dow Boys gave me um, an enterprise you can use with, uh, with a game, board game that we play, a Star Trek Enterprise. Sorry, I'm totally digressing. Um, let me go back to this. It's a difficult chapter, but pay attention because God does some of those most amazing things in difficult chapters. While we're busy focusing on the other destruction or drama that our family's going through, God is doing something so significant, so priceless that you could scarcely dare to imagine, but you don't notice it until much later. 
This once again, it is a difficult chapter because you have Judah, who's one of the patriarchs, and he is not acting in a righteous way. He acts in pretty unrighteous ways. And you have his daughter-in-law who's so desperate, she dresses up like a prostitute so that she can get a baby from her father-in-law. And you're like, okay, what do you do with all of this? But God is doing an amazing thing in this chapter. And you think about the dark chapters in your own life. I guarantee you, God is doing something unaware that you could never possibly imagine. The difficult chapters is where we grow. God does work in us during those chapters that we don't notice until years later. All of Jacob's 12 sons are collectively known as the patriarchs. That is why we're continuing the series in patriarchs with the 12 sons. But two stand out, and that is Joseph and Judah. A Puritan preacher, John Favell, wrote, The providence of God is like Hebrew words. It can only be read backwards. The Hebrew language, it doesn't read left to right, it reads right to left. I don't read Hebrew super well. And often I make that mistake and I'm like, okay, this doesn't mean anything. And then I'm like, okay, no, no, I got to start here and go this way. The providence of God, the working of God in our life, often, in fact, almost exclusively, we can only read it backwards. So let's talk about Joseph and Judah, but let's read backwards. Let's go all the way to the end of this book right here, to the book of Revelation. So once again, we, we have these two that stand out, Judah and Joseph. And we might think, okay, Joseph, that's the person we should follow because Joseph, he's more moral than Judah. He's more ethical. It seems like God is working more in Joseph's story than in Judah's story because God makes him governor over all of, all of Egypt and he saves, you know, countless people from starvation. Okay, but if we go to the very end of this book in Revelation chapter five, verse four through six. Of course, I could have picked other ones here, but I wanted to go to this one right here. And I began to weep loudly. This is John the Revelator. In his, in his revelation, in his vision, there's this scroll with seals on it and no one can now open it. So he says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no war, more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah? Yes, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals at the end of all things. Judah, who is not worthy to be named, right? Is named because the Messiah, Jesus Christ comes from the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Remember this right here, because this is going to play into once we get towards the end of this. Sorry, this is going to be a bit of a, a, a survey through the scriptures as we look at Judah. If we look at Matthew and Luke, in both gospels, they're accounted the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes not from Joseph's two tribes, which would have been Manasseh and Ephraim. He comes from the tribe of Judah. Joseph lived a more moral life and more spiritual life but, than Judah, but God's choice is not based on performance. Oh, it's not based on performance. God's choice is up to him in his sovereignty. In the chapter that... Um, uh, in, in, in Matthew and Luke right here, um, we see... It, Jesus coming from the tribe of Judah. So let's go a little further back to the post-exile books towards the end of the Old Testament. And we see it is Judah 
who resettles the promised land and it becomes a Roman province named Judah after the tribe of Judah and not from any of the tribes of Joseph. In fact, as we go into the New Testament, we know about Samaria, right? The good Samaritan. That right there, Samaria was the capital of the tribe of Ephraim, who was Joseph's son. Joseph gets a double blessing from his father, Ephraim and Manasseh. So let's actually go a little further back here. Before the exile to the king kingdom. The kingdom, um, it was awesome. And then David's son messes it all up and it breaks into two between the northern and the southern. The southern, who has a couple righteous kings, is the kingdom of Judah. The northern, we often hear it called the Israel, just Israel plain. But actually it was also called Ephraim after Joseph. They did not have one good king. In fact, one of their kings really messes up. And what he does is he aligns with the enemies of Judah against Judah. And God promises that their people will be scattered and utterly dismissed. That's why when you read in your New Testament about Samaritans, nobody calls Samaritans Jews. Because that is part of the promise of God after they had decided to try to attack their own brothers. So if we go further back from that, when the kingdom was actually established, David, he was the second king of Israel. The first king came from Benjamin, the second king from Judah. He is the one who has a promise that his, that his descendant will always be on the throne of the tribe of Judah. If we get into the book of Ruth, Ruth was a pagan Moabite. The Moabites were a people where God commanded Israelites not to marry. Well, it turns out some people didn't care and they married him anyway. And that's Ruth. And her husband dies. He's wicked before the Lord and he dies. And it's a wonderful example of God's providence because she would become the great, 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 I don't know how many great, grandma of Messiah. Her husband was Boaz. And Boaz himself has a very unusual mother. His mother was Rahab, the prostitute I talked about earlier. Boaz's mom was a prostitute named Rahab, who after sheltering spies, let a scarlet thread fall from her window. Her husband was a man named Solomon of the tribe of Judah. From here, I just, this, is, this is so cool. I hope you're paying attention. Okay. Clement of Rome believed that one of those spies was Rahab's future husband, Solomon. Solomon's of the tribe of Judah. His family goes back to Judah, who we've been talking about. And when we get to chapter 38, we have Zerah with his scarlet thread on there. So I will say this. This makes this plausible, but this isn't, this isn't as strong as I would like it. But if it is Solomon, who's one of those spies, and he sees this woman who's supposed to be a sinner of sinners, a prostitute, but she sees them and she sees this chance of redemption, of salvation, at least for her and her family. So she shelters these spies and he sees her and he remembers great, great, great grandma pretended to be a prostitute who got pregnant. And my great, 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 great uncle had the scarlet thread around his, uh, around his wrist. My uncle and my great, 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 great grandpa who should have never existed except for the providence of God. And now providentially, we're in this woman's house. And what does he pick? He could have picked white, right? He could have picked many colors. But he sees, I see you have a scarlet cord. Hang that out your window. 
Doesn't that give you chills when it comes to the providence of God? When it comes to, you think sometimes, maybe you think that God has forgotten you, but he hasn't. Because there's a scarlet thread that waves itself around and through believers. It can never be erased. As we are going backwards here, we're almost to our chapter. We're in chapter, let's look at chapter 49 of Genesis. When Jacob is dying, he prophetically blesses his son. And for Judah, he says this in chapter 49, in verse eight, I think I've got it up there, right? Yes, thank you. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Shouldn't we be thinking Joseph right here? Because Joseph was the moral one, right? He's the one who saved everybody, except it's Judah. You see, the oldest Reuben, he had disqualified himself. When, when Jacob goes to bless Reuben, he's like, yeah, you remember what you did? I didn't forget. Neither did the Lord. You're disqualified. And then the two oldest, the next two oldest is a guy named Simeon, another guy named uh, Levi. And they're the ones who killed the neighbors. So when Joseph is blessing them, he says, they're men of the sword. Let them never enter into my council. And then he comes to Judah and he is blessing them prophetically. And he sees the decision of the Lord on him. He says, Judah is a lion's cub. Remember what I read in Revelation? The lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah is a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. That's the promise God gave David. That's the promise God weaves throughout all this thing. And the Jesus Christ comes from David, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We read that in Revelation and it's right here in Genesis. Binding his fowl to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Maybe some of you know this, but when Jesus enters Jerusalem, they were reading this and he's entering on, uh, on, a, on a donkey's colt. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. I could have chosen Revelation 19 to talk about Jesus being the, from the tribe of David. But you know, one of the descriptions of Jesus that's in Revelation is that his robes are dipped in blood. Today we'll be drinking, we'll be, we'll be taking communion. And we do juice here because we're assembly of God folk. We don't do the alcohol thing. But traditionally, wine symbolizes the blood of Christ in his garments, in wine and vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. I figure today, because maybe you're going to nod off towards the end of it, I better not bury the lead. I better come right out with it. And this is what it is, that there is a scarlet thread that unites the people of Christ that can never be erased. Now, this is long before Christ, but he is the lamb who is slain before the foundation of the world. Judah is saved in his ignorance by what we know in our knowing. And as we look at this chapter right here, we can almost look at this chapter through the lens of what people are wearing, what specifically Tamar is wearing. Tamar is a very interesting woman. She is so much like like Judah's father, Jacob, in that she wants, she desires to be part of God's plan and she uses deception to do it. 
but God honors her because she wants to be part of God's plan. And does that mean that the thing she does is right? But when we look at her, we see she starts off in this chapter with widows, a widow's wardrobe. Two, she changes into a scarlet to a harlot's veil. And then three, we're kind of abandoning that. We're going to talk more about the scarlet thread as we come to that. Verses 1 through 12, the widow's wardrobe. We get into this right here. Some of your translations say, meanwhile, mine says, it happened at that time. You know, a lot happens at the same time, right? All the drama in 37 as they lower their brother into the pit, sell him into slavery. All that, well, that's going on. All the adventures that Joseph is having um, over in Egypt. Judah is having his own adventures. Joseph is carried away, but Judah leaves to start his own family. This is before God's law and before God told his people of Israel not to marry the inhabitants of the land. But his ignorance does not, does not excuse him because he had examples in his own immediate family. His uncle Esau marries two Canaanites and they are a misery to his parents. The family knows, okay, you should marry within the family of God that God had established or whether we need to go back to mom and dad or aunt and uncles, people. But you don't go outside of that because that's what Esau did. And Judah's like, I don't care. This woman's hot. I'm going to marry her. And so he does. So he, go, he ventures into the land and, and he marries this woman. He has three children with her. He is in sin here and he knows it. He has drifted. And I say that he's drifted really far morally, but I don't know how much further you can get from, hey, my brother, let's kill him. And then it's like, hey, instead of killing him, let's make sure we sell him into slavery so we can get some money too. Anyway, there's so much evidence of his moral drift, his drifting away, even socially from even the norms of his people. In verse two, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shura. He took her and went, went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he, called, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she, and she called his name Shelah or Selah, or Sheila, I'm going to say Sheila. Um, Judah was, was in uh, Chesbit uh, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Here we have the introduction of Tamar. She is an unlucky bride. She is also a Canaanite, but that's not her fault. Judah is the one who picked the wife for his son. He didn't have the same conviction Abraham had, which is do not have, do not pick for me a wife for my son amongst these people. So he picks another Canaanite. When it comes to a, when it comes to a bride for the oldest, he finds Tamar. She seems pretty unlucky, especially in that day, her first husband dies. Judah knows what is right. And he gives her to his second son. This in history is called, um, Oh, and I forgot the term. Anyway, in the Bible, it's called a kinsman redeemer. Um, oh, it's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, kinsman redeemer, in which in order for the brother who died for his wealth not to be lost and his family line not to be lost, that woman is then married to the next oldest son. He is supposed to have children with her and those children are not his, but they are the sons of his brother so that his brother's family line, the whatever wealth he has, whatever land he has could be transferred to that new heir. Judah knows this and he understands this to be right. And in verse seven, 
But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, um, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of the brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for, her, for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to give offspring to his brother. And um, this is how you know you're not in children's church because I'm reading all of this. Verse 10. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your brother's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that, she, that he would die like his brothers. She does nothing wrong, but she is seen, she is seen as, I don't know, unlucky, like she's cursed. I don't know what is in Judah's mind. He's lived among the pagans for too long. So he starts thinking like the pagans. He starts getting very superstitious. Instead of maybe deciding for himself, okay, maybe I'm disobeying the Lord and that is why this is happening. He prefers to come up with a, a, different, a different understanding. Maybe Tamar, who's never done anything wrong in this story, maybe she's cursed and that's why my sons are dying. So I better not do the next right thing and make sure she doesn't marry Sheila here. Seems ridiculous until, you know, I've been a pastor now for, I don't know, 15 years or something like that. And there are so many people who will talk to me about struggles they have. And there's a one-to-one -one connection between their bad choices and the current consequences that they're living in. Yet every person I talk to want to spiritualize it. Oh, it's, you know, it, why is God doing this to me? It's like, he's letting you have the consequences of your own decisions. Or I hear because I'm a Pentecostal pastor, because somebody didn't do something they felt like the Holy Spirit was telling them in the past, God is now punishing them. I've heard this one before. And I had to very lovingly tell that person, it wasn't here, by the way. Um, I had to tell them, okay, maybe you're having trouble in your marriage because the way you look at women in the church makes them super uncomfortable. And that they know what's on your mind and things you've said are wrong. And they're like, oh, well, no, 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 God told me. It's like, no, no, dude. This is the problem. This is the connection. Let's not try to split hairs here. Judah is like, maybe she's unlucky. So I'm going to keep Selah back. He got to decide, okay, as a family, let's go move back to my father's house. Let us go back to the things that we once knew. He will eventually have to do that anyway. Instead, he decides to try to blame it on some other thing. We don't really know. I don't know why he does what he does, but he believes that um, Selah will die if he's married to Tamar as well. The family line is in danger right here. The theme that is woven throughout Genesis up to this point is about the seed. First, it's the seed of the woman, that the snake would bruise his heel, but he would crush the snake's head. We know eventually that is Jesus Christ. Okay, so you wonder, as you read throughout Genesis, who is this seed going to be? And the seed of the woman is replaced, replaced by the seed of Abraham, and that God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to always have an heir. And now we know that it's going to be Judah that God chooses, Judah doesn't know this and he doesn't seem to care because he doesn't find a new wife for Selah. He doesn't do what he knows is right. But that is the working of God in this, is that God does not, God, God makes his decisions and God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish, even if it seems impossible. Tamar has to wait a very long time and she gets very tired of waiting. Dear believer, understand this is what did happen, not what should have happened. The good guy in this is God because God uses these disobedient, wicked people for his own glory and for their good eventually. 
God's plan seems to always take longer than we want it to. That's the understatement of the year, right? But the times and the seasons are in the purview of God, not for us. We can trust that at the right time, God will accomplish what he means to accomplish. Tamar waits for a good long while. Judah's youngest son has grown. Judah's wife dies and she has run out of patience. And in verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shur's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah, um, to his sheep shears. He and his friend, uh, Hira, the the Adulite. In verse 13, and when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance um, to an name, which which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that uh, Selah had grown up and had not been given to, not she had not been given to him in marriage. So she gets tired of wearing the widow's robes and she puts on the harlot's veil instead. As we go into this, as we go through this, I want to explain to you, she knew exactly what she was doing. She knew exactly how to dress and where to sit in order to get what she was wanting in this. She has this wardrobe change, takes off the widow's garments and puts on the harlot's veil, verses 13 through 23. And point number two, the wardrobe change, she takes off her clothes of mourning and dresses up like, a, like it's Halloween at a college party. Um, I think it's a funny joke. Anyway, uh, I mean, like a harlot. She is unrecognized, unrecognizable, and, and she is doing this to, to deceive Judah. The youngest is old enough and has not been given to Tamar, so she takes the situation into her own hands. You know what I think is amazing about Tamar is that she seems so much like Judah's dad, Jacob. Because when Jacob wanted the blessing of God, he dressed up like someone he wasn't, Esau. You know, I don't even realize this. It's kind of interesting. Like this is hitting right after Halloween. And we talk about people dressing up as things that they're not. Anyway, she dresses up like a harlot. Um, Judah's uh, dad dressed up like Esau in order to get steal the blessing. So she dresses up like a harlot in order to, I don't know if the right word is steal a child from him, um, but to get a child on from him. Uh, she dresses up like a prostitute, verses 15 through 18. There's a, there's a backdrop to this event that maybe we don't pick up on. This is a time of pagan celebration as the harvest is coming in. Tamar is from this area. She knows what she is doing. She knows how to dress. She knows where to sit in order to have the opportunity to get a child from Judah. You know, dress for the job you want, right? So she does that. Judah takes the bait and approaches her and has no way to pay right then and there. So she accepts his signet ring, his cord, and his staff, items that would be unmistakably his, because what she wanted was not money. She wanted proof of what is going on right here. In, verses, in verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. And for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until, until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. 
Stop. Tamar is desperate. She is wise. She is crafty. But she is not a good guy. And this is not a how-to in order to get the blessing of God. This is a story of sinners in need of a savior. God will rescue both Tamar and Judah from their unfaithfulness, from their disobedience, and from their wickedness. Verse 19, we have another wardrobe change. In verse 19, she goes back to her widow's clothing. Some of your translations will say that when Judah hears about Tamar being pregnant is that she was playing the harlot. This is true because she goes back to her old life as a widow. Um, she, does, she was not an actual harlot. In Proverbs 3, 5 and, 5 and 6, this is the instruction. Before it's descriptive, here is prescriptive. This is what we should do instead. Verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs chapter 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. You never get to use the excuse, well, I was really desperate so I can do whatever I want. I can disobey God. You can't use this story to do that either. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Prescriptive, trust in the Lord, wait on the Lord, believe and trust that God will make your paths straight. In verses 20 through 23, um, Judah gets, gets, the, gets the goat. <laughs> that sounds weird. Anyway, he gets a young goat um, and he gives it to his friend. His friend is a good guy, right? I mean, it's kind of comical. It goes from really kind of gross to really comical after this, because you can imagine his friend, the Adulamite, he's going into this town and it's kind of like Cinderella. It's like, okay, who's expecting a goat? <laughs> if you have the signet ring, if you have the cord and the walking stick, and I can tell it's Judah, you get a goat instead of like a, you know, a kingdom. It's not the glass slipper, it's a goat. Somebody should make a fairy tale like that. That would be awesome. Disney probably would not make it into a movie. Um, <laughs> So he's looking around and obviously can't find her because she's not there. She was playing a part. And yeah, you uh, play stupid games, you get stupid prizes, right, Judah? You lost your signet ring, you lost your walking stick, and you lost your uh, signet ring cord. There we go. I almost missed the third one. She is now pregnant. She has gotten what she wanted. The consequences could be dire. In verses 24 through 30, which is what Becca read today, we see guilt in need of forgiveness. Who's guilty in this story? Everyone. Not just Tamar, but Judah as well. Who is guilty in every story that is ever told? Everyone involved for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You, dear friend, I don't care how morally you tried to live. You've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you are in need of forgiveness. You are no better than Tamar. You are no better than Judah. Everyone is in need of forgiveness. And we forget that, don't we? When we come across someone who sins differently than us, we get the, we get the powdered wig out. We get the gavel out. It's time to be judge and jury. You know, what's worse is when we come across somebody who sins exactly the way we've sinned. I've often said this. I don't know if it's a universal truth, but it seems to be more true than not but that the sin you hate in other people the most is the sin you hate in yourself the most. And you can't stand the mirror. Like I see this all the time when somebody goes off and off and off. Oh, everybody's such a gossip. Oh, gossip is so terrible. Gossiping is, is so bad. I mean, it's not like it's just in mild irritation. They're like constantly on and on about gossiping. And then like, you know them and you're like, do you have no like self-introspection? You're one of the worst gossips I know. <laughs> 
And I could go on and on about other things. Because unless we've been forgiven, that's what we see. And that's what we're going to see as we go further in here. In verse 24. And the right thing? All right, good deal. Um, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Some of your translations say here, play the harlot. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. That's a bit much, it seems. You know, at the time you kind of stoned people. You didn't burn them at the stake. Some of your translations will use the phrase playing the harlot. But who's playing the harlot here? Not just Tamar, but also Judah. He gave away his virtue, didn't he? She, is, she put on a veil and made sure she was in a place where harlots go. But what about Judah? In Jeremiah, God sees idolatry, meaning serving other gods, the same thing as idolatry. He says that Judah, the tribe of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, he says, played the harlot. No, this, Tamar, this sin of Tamar's, it's mirrored in the person of Judah. Judah condemns her to fire, but nothing for himself. And here's the thing, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All sin is punishable by death, by hell, fire. So he's not wrong in what she deserves. He's just wrong in not understanding he also deserves it. And without Christ, all of us deserve it as well. Without Christ, we also deserve to be burned. I believe this is the first time in scripture somebody is condemned to fire for, for breaking some kind of a law. Judah condemns her right away. No trial. In fact, he kind of does through correspondence. He hears about her guilt and then he just makes his decision. And you think about, weren't you doing the same thing? I mean, you, you're the one buying the prostitute, right? And here we have in verse 25, verse 25. It's, it's one of the most nice turnarounds in the scripture. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, what was she being brought out to be done? Burned alive. She sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify those, uh, whose these things are and the signet and the cord and the staff. A descendant of Judah will be asked to be a judge in a case. This man will go to this descendant of Judah and he will tell him about the crimes of this other man. He'll say, this man is rich. He's in need of nothing. He has massive flocks. He doesn't have anything, but he had a visitor in order to fulfill his right to his obligation to be hospitable. He needs to take one of his sheep, slaughter it, prepare it, cook it, and feed it to the man. So this rich man, he has a neighbor and this neighbor has just one sheep. This, this neighbor, he's poor, but he has one sheep and he dotes on this sheep like it's his own daughter. The sheep is eating at his table. The sheep is sleeping in his bed. The sheep means the world to him and the rich neighbor, instead of taking one of his many sheep, takes this man's sheep. He slaughters it. He feeds it to his guest. And he asks the descendant of Judah, what should happen to this man? And he tells him, as surely as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And Nathan, the prophet says to King David, you're that man. Judah here has the same experience. He's willing to condemn her for his, 
for a sin he's committed, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't see himself in that until he has that signet back. By the way, the signet is not like a medieval ring that you would use to make envelopes. It was about this big kind of on a, on a keychain. It's un, unmistakably Judas. And he finds out he's the man who sinned with her. And more than that, it's not just that sin. He should have given his youngest to her. And he says, she's more righteous than me. We need a revelation of our own sin in our life or we become self-righteous just like Judah. And we come across sins, even sins that we have a problem with. That's why I said, you know, we are quick to judge people who sin exactly the way we sin. And we are vicious in our judgments because our sin is hidden while their sin is exposed. And we get our little self-righteous attitude about it. I talked about gossiping before. I was wondering whether or not I should say this, but you know, I'm going to anyway. This town, this area has a problem with gossip. I don't mean that in the general sense. I mean that in the specific sense. I hear about things that happen in this town before I hear it from the person, no matter how close we are. That's a problem, folks. If you have a trust, you should keep that trust. If you have a confidentiality, you better keep that confidentiality because gossiping about it. And by the way, I was, I was praying about this and I felt the Holy Spirit saying this to me is that I'm saying this to you today because some of you, I am, the Holy Spirit is speaking to and this is your chance before the Holy Spirit decides to discipline you more harshly. So I hope you're listening. I hope you're not just like, well, that's for the other people. Now let's talk about some of the people in church, some of the people from work, some of the people in town and all of their sins without actually looking at my own sin. This is your warning. This is your danger, danger, Will Robinson. Pay attention. You are the man. Judah contemns Tamar to burn, but he is guilty of the same sin. And in verse 25, he has his you are that man moment. We all need a constant revelation for sin in our own life that without Christ, I am one of these. Jesus gives this parable about a rich man and a Pharisee, a Pharisee being a religious professional of the time. And both men come to the temple and one man, the Pharisee says, thank you, God, I am not like, and he gives his list of people he's not like, or like this man over there, this, this tax collector. And the tax collector, he can't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but pound his chest and say, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. Jesus says it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee who was justified before God. We need a constant revelation for our sin because we will drift towards Pharisee and not towards the tax collector. No matter how licentious, immoral, unethical our life becomes, we will always have our list of people that at least I'm not like them. You know know what the big problem with that? It's not that he thanked God that God kept him from sin. It's that he is like that tax collector. He is like the prostitute. He is like the men and women he sees himself better than. That without the constant restraining work of the Holy Spirit, that is who he is. You know what's great about chapter 38? It ends really nice. It ends on a very positive note. On the birth of twin sons. I've said this before. Children are an absolute good Even ones who are born from dubious circumstances are an absolute good and should be praised God for. 
In verse 27, when the time came of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out and the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was Zerah. This is kind of like a good version of Jacob and Esau. When Jacob was coming out of the womb, he's holding on to Esau's heel and they're twins. As far as we know, there's not a lot of drama between these two twins. In fact, I would say if it is true that Solomon was one of the spies, it was seen as a very positive story in their family as opposed to the negative story. I'm so glad today is today's communion and we saved communion for last for a reason. Taking communion is not some ritual in which we get extra blessing from God. It is worship. It is worship as we recognize, as we remember the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, that the scarlet threads that came from his hands, from his feet, and from his side connect me to you if you are in Christ. It connects us all the way back to Judah. There's a song that I'll listen to while I'm running. Worship team, you can come up at this time. Um, song I listen to when I'm running, and it's by Mark Schultz. It's not really a congregational song, so I didn't have us sing it today, but it's called Remember Me. And in the song, it's kind of way around, but kind of communion, but there's this uh, chorus, age to age and heart to heart, child of wonder, child of God. And that's the, that's the amazing thing about communion is that metaphorically, the same blood that runs through my veins runs through yours. That age to age, from one blessing to another blessing, as the baton gets handed to the next generation. And when I, when I hear this, when I'm running, I think of, in my mind, in my heart, of all the saints that I've ministered with and to over the years who have gone to be with the Lord or are running with me. I don't mean that physically. I'm talking metaphorically. I'm not saying they're ghosts or something or ha- hanging out with me. And I think of the glorious day when... One of my friends in my last church was named Billy. And Billy was, he, he, he was practically blind. And I saw such faith in the man as he literally walked by faith and not by sight. Billy passed away a few years back. And I remember every time I take communion, I think, I'm eating this with Billy, who's eating it anew on my father's table. And as I drink the juice, I'm reminded that the blood of Christ connects us. People say, okay, what's wrong with the Christian religion? There's so many disagreements. There's so many different denominations. The one prayer of Jesus Christ never answered is that they would be one as he and his father is one, but it was answered. And it was answered by the scarlet threads pouring from his hands, from his feet and from his side and from his brow. Are you in Christ today? Do you know Jesus Christ? Is that scarlet thread that I've been talking about woven around and through you today? Do you know that you're a sinner? We just had baptism last week. And the testimonies that came from that were just so powerful of understanding, yes, I am a sinner, but I understand Christ is my savior. And I know if I'm going to die, that I will be safe in him. The only way that is, is this scarlet thread goes around and through you as well. 
Have you turned away from your sin, hate your sin and love the one who came to save you from it? The rest of Judah's story right here in this chapter, he had two unrighteous sons who died for their wickedness are now replaced by two righteous sons. A Canaanite wife who passed away is now replaced by a woman who, though Canaanite outwardly, inward in her very heart, is an Israelite because she is a daughter of God. I'll leave you with this right here and I'll give instructions then for communion. But George MacDonald, he was the spiritual mentor of C.S. Lewis, said man finds it hard to get what he wants because he does not want the best. And God finds it hard to give because he would give the best and man will not take it. The best is to know the Lord. I don't care where you're at in your life with the Lord. The best thing to know is good is the sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ.